up where the first left off, Joshua chapter 8, I will begin reading at verse 18 through the end of the chapter. Hear the word of God. Then the Lord said to Joshua, stretch out the javelin that is in your hand toward I, for I will give it into your hand. And Joshua stretched out the javelin that was in his hand toward the city, and the men in the ambush rose quickly out of their place. And as soon as he had stretched out his hand, they ran and entered the city and captured it. And they hurried to set the city on fire. And when the men of Ai looked back, behold, the smoke of the city went up to heaven, and they had no power to flee this way or that, for the people who fled to the wilderness turned back against the pursuers. And when Joshua and all Israel saw that the ambush had captured the city and that the smoke of the city went up, then they turned back and struck down the men of Ai. And the others came out from the city against them, so they were in the midst of Israel, some on this side, some on that side, and Israel struck them down until was left none that survived or escaped. But the king of Ai they took alive and brought him near Joshua. When Israel had finished killing all the inhabitants of Ai in the open wilderness where they pursued them, and all of them to the very last had fallen by the edge of the sword, all Israel returned to Ai and struck it down with the edge of the sword. And all who fell that day, both men and women, were 12,000, all the people of Ai. But Joshua did not draw back his hand with which he stretched out the javelin until he had devoted all of the inhabitants of Ai to destruction. Only the livestock and the spoil of that city Israel took as their plunder, according to the word of the Lord that he commanded Joshua. So Joshua burned Ai and made it forever a heap of ruins, as it is to this day. And he hanged the king of Ai on a tree until evening. At sunset, Joshua commanded, and they took his body down from the tree and threw it at the entrance of the gate of the city and raised over it a great heap of stones, which stands there till this day. At that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool. And they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord, and sacrificed peace offerings. And there, in the presence of the people of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. And all Israel, sojourner as well as native-born, with their elders and officers and their judges, stood on opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, half of them in front of Mount Gerizim, and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded at the first to bless the people of Israel. And afterward he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel and the women and the little ones, and the sojourners who lived among them. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you would be 
present uh, this morning in its preaching and in its hearing. We ask that you would speak to us and give us the words that we need this day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I've been out of the pulpit for three of the past four Sundays, which I think is a, a record for me. I've listened to the sermons that Elder Stephen Clark and Elder Tom Daniels delivered while I was away. You can find those, by the way, on our website at h3pc.org. And I heard good reports about the Reverend Christy Bruce uh, presiding at the Lord's Supper two weeks ago, all of which makes me uh, grateful for the deep bench that we have here at HVPC. Part of the strength of this church is that we have many people who are able and willing to lead. So thanks be to God for that for that blessing. And thanks to Stephen and Tom and Christy for stepping up to the plate and allowing me to take some time off. Two of the weeks that I was gone were to accommodate uh, family weddings. My daughter Rosie married Josh Bruce on June 22nd, and we had a kind of repeat of that here yesterday in this sanctuary. And then my wife's brother also got married. That was the big fat Jewish wedding with lots of dancing and lots of family. And we had a wonderful time at that wedding as well. And then after the weddings, my family and I went for a week's vacation by a lake in New Hampshire. And on our first day at the lake, my right knee gave out as I was walking down some steps. And I dropped to the ground as if a horse had been shot out from underneath me, and I thought my leg was broken. Then there was an ambulance ride to the emergency room, and there was fentanyl, and there were x-rays, and there was crutches, and a leg brace, and a bottle of pills, and they sent me back to the cabin to spend the rest of the week. So this was all a very sobering and unpleasant experience, not just physically, but also psychologically. It's very strange After all of these years of trusting my body to do exactly what I tell it to do, to all of a sudden find that it's no longer taking orders from me. My knee now has a mind of its own, and as a result, my life and my movements have gotten a little bit slower. Now, some of you who are older than me might know what I'm talking about. So, let me say this to you old folks. If I couldn't sympathize with you before, I can now. And if I ever said to you, pick up the pace, Grandpa, I'm really sorry. I understand now the necessity of walking very carefully on legs that hurt and don't inspire confidence anymore. Right now, for me, every movement is calculated. Every trip to pick up a book across the room has to be planned Doing the laundry is a major undertaking. The dirty clothes are on the second floor and the machine is in the basement. And getting the clothes to the machine is a kind of expedition. It's doable, but with a leg that can't be trusted, it takes more time and more attention. Two days into my injury, my nine-year-old Mia said to me, Papa, do you think God sent you this problem with your knee for a reason? Like, maybe you need to rest. It was a very tender and sweet question, and it surprised me. Maybe you're thinking that kind of question is to be expected 
From a kid who's being raised by a Presbyterian pastor, by a kid whose brother's name is John Calvin. But the truth of the matter is that I've never been one to emphasize the providential aspect of life's troubles. Yes, I believe that God is sovereign. Yes, I believe God is in control of everything that happens in this world. But if you burn your hand setting off fireworks, or if you stub your toe running without shoes, I hope I'm not the guy who says to you, do you think God is trying to teach you something? So it was interesting for me to hear such a wonderful Calvinistic question about providence out of the mouth of Mia. She didn't ask, Papa, do you think God sent you this problem because she was trying to console me? Or trying to make me look on the bright side of things. I think she was genuinely trying to make sense of a real difficulty in life. A life that, as far as she knows, is easy and charmed and always blessed. Her natural empathy not only made her my fellow sufferer, but also made her look for answers to that very hard question. If God is good, why do bad things happen to us? Now, I only mention this because I think it reflects well on the religious and the theological training that Mia is getting at Valley Christian School and in our Burning Bush Sunday morning children's program. So, with my leg busted up, I didn't take advantage of any of the golf or tennis or water sports that were around me there in New Hampshire. I did eat three times a day when other people fed me, and in between I sat on the porch and I read. So in that regard, I had a very restful vacation. But you didn't come to church this morning to hear about my vacation, so let's talk about Joshua chapter 8. Rewinding just a bit so that we can take a running start at today's passage, you'll remember that in Joshua chapter 6, we read about the conquest of Jericho, the gateway city, into Canaan. This is certainly one of the most famous stories in the Bible. For six days, the children of Israel march around the walls of Jericho, and on the seventh day, they march around it seven times, and then God causes the walls to fall flat. The victory is total, it is unambiguous, it is bigger than it needed to be, but God uses the fall of Jericho as a sign of his presence with these people, as proof to the whole world that it is he, Yahweh, who is delivering this land to these people. In God's battle instructions, God tells the Israelites that they are to take nothing from Jericho. Everything in the city is devoted to him. It's set aside for God as a sacrifice, not only the people, but also the wealth of the city. Now, of course, everything in the world belongs to God. Everything in our lives belongs to God, our bodies, our wealth, our talents, even the hours and the days of our life. They all belong to God. But most of the bounty that God sends our way, He allows us to use for our own pleasure and purposes. A portion, however, a tithe of that bounty, God requires to be devoted to Him, to be set aside as a sacrifice. 
That portion, though it's in our hands, though it's under our control, does not belong to us. And if we keep it for our own purposes, we are stealing, we're embezzling God's wealth. In the special case of Jericho, God insisted upon 100%. Even though the whole city and all of its inhabitants and wealth were delivered into the hands of the Israelites, 100% of it was devoted to God. That was a special case. Normally, God requires only 10% of all that we have, not 100%. In Joshua chapter 7, we learn that God's instructions on the devotion of everything in Jericho to him were not obeyed. We learn this because when the children of Israel go up against the city of Ai, they meet with disaster rather than victory. Just as their victory at Jericho was the result of their prior obedience, their failure at Ai was the result of their prior disobedience. And the guilt lands on a fellow named Achim. In chapter 7, verse 20, we hear Achim say, Truly I have sinned against the God of Israel. And this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold, I coveted them and I took them. Now let me say just a little something about how it is that Aachen was found out and what that might mean. You'll recall that the process of identifying Aachen as the guilty party, and he's one man out of hundreds of thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people who have been swarming over this city of Jericho, the, that he is discovered through a sequence of lots. Now by lot, we mean picking something seemingly at random out of a group of things. For example, at our house, we decide who goes first in the game of Scrabble by drawing tiles out of the box and seeing which player's letter is closest to A. That's choosing by lot. Aachen was identified by a series of lots. First, by lot, one of the twelve tribes was chosen. Then, by lot, one of the clans from that tribe was chosen. Then, by lot, one of the households from that clan was chosen. And finally, by lot, one man from that household was chosen, and that man was Aachen. This actually would be a pretty good way to choose the next president of the United States. But what about poor Aachen? Remember, he's executed for his crime. Is he the only man in all of Israel who gave in to covetousness and stole things that were devoted to God? Or is he simply the representative scapegoat for the rest of the nation? Your answer to that question will have something to do with how you understand the supernatural and how you read Scripture. But let me say this, the outcome in either case is the same. Because Aachen, whether he is the only guilty person or whether he is the representative uh, scapegoat guilty person, in either case, he is guilty. He did steal stuff that belonged to God. If he's the only guilty party then the lots were a targeted, laser-like system of justice. 
If he is the representative scapegoat, guilty party, then God spared and showed mercy to many while making a visible example of this one. Okay, that's chapter 7. Now chapter 8. At the end of chapter 7, God commands that Achan be executed for withholding from God what belongs to God. But then at the beginning of chapter 8, the very first thing we hear from God is him saying to Joshua, do not fear and do not be dismayed. Now that's been God's refrain all along from the very beginning of this book. Do not fear, do not be dismayed. God says it over and over again. Do not fear, do not be dismayed. Now listen, Joshua has plenty to be afraid of. He's a soldier going into battle against other armed men. And this isn't like some warfare that we see these days where a soldier can sit at a console in an air-conditioned office and operate a drone with a joystick and blast some bad guy who's walking down the road with a donkey a hundred miles away. When Joshua goes into battle, he has a bronze sword in his hand. And the guy he's going up against has got a bronze sword in his hand. And one of those two guys is not going home for dinner that night. Joshua has plenty to be afraid of. But God keeps telling him, do not fear, do not be dismayed. When God called Moses to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt and into the promised land... Moses' number one concern was that God would go with him. That God would be present on the journey. Moses knew that he stood no chance, that the Israelites had no hope of success if God was not present in their camp. Moses' one request of Yahweh was, don't send me up if you're not going to go with us. Now that prayer is right in So many ways that prayer recognizes that our success comes from God. That prayer recognizes that without God we can't win. But with God we can't fail. And when Joshua assumes the mantle of Moses and continues to lead God's people forward into the land that God has assigned for them... His one concern is the same. Don't send us, God, if you're not going to go with us. For Joshua and his men to go into battle without God would be suicide. That's what happened in chapter 7. When the Israelites come up against the city of Ai the first time and are sent running with their tails between their legs and their men dead on the battlefield. Because of the sin of Achan, God was not with them. And without God, there can be no victory. Without God, we cannot win. Now, the leadership in our church is called the session. The session is the board of elders who governs this congregation. I'm a member of that board. And our book of order, which is our constitution specifies that the job of an elder is to discern the mind of Christ and the will of God. The primary requirement for eldership is not human wisdom, 
but rather the spiritual gift of discernment, which means answering questions like, where is God in this situation? What is God doing here? How can we participate in what God is doing here? Without God, we cannot win, but with God, we cannot fail. And so Joshua, as the prophet leading the children of Israel, is desperate to stay attuned to what God is doing and where God is and how he and his people can remain in the presence of God. It is always our sin which separates us from God, the hardness of our heart, the hardness of our hearts. God does not move away from us, but our sin turns our backs to God. Our sin interrupts our relationship with God, and that means that the pursuit of personal holiness is the same as the pursuit of the presence of God. And the pursuit of the presence of God is the pursuit of the favor that we find when we are with God. If you want God's favor, pursue God's presence. And if you want God's presence, pursue personal holiness. If we are where God is, we will be blessed. If we're far from God, however, our lives are going to be a mess. Without God, we cannot win, but with God, we cannot fail. This whole episode of the first attack on I and the discovery of the sin of Achan must have really shaken Joshua. The victory at Jericho was amazing, but the rout at I was disastrous. How in the world are the children of Israel going to occupy the promised land if episodes like I keep happening? If Joshua is going to survive in his role of leadership, how is this going to be possible if God is not present with him? At the end of chapter 7, the sin of Achan, the sin of Israel, is dealt with. And then at the beginning of chapter 8, God says to Joshua, Do not fear, do not be dismayed, and in short order, the city of Ai is taken. And the children of Israel move forward. There's just one important lesson here that I want to lift up for your attention this morning. Sin turns us away from God, and apart from God there is no blessing. But once we've dealt with our sin, once we've returned to the presence of God, God's favor returns to us. God does not hold grudges. Yes, God demands holiness. Yes, God hates sin. But once our past sin is dealt with, we're restored to a state of grace. We're back in the presence of God. And God's favor and blessing are ours again. God does not hold grudges. Israel messed up. Achan messed up. God's presence and favor were withdrawn. But notice what God doesn't do. God didn't say, okay, Israel, you've dealt with that sin at I, but now you're on probation for six months. And if I see no more bad behavior out of you for these next six months, then I'll start trusting you again, and we can go back to having a relationship. That's not what God does. 
Sometimes human relationships are like that. In some relationships, if we mess up, we find ourselves in the doghouse for a long time. If we mess up, we have to prove that we are worthy of the other person's affections again. I don't know if I can trust you. And they keep us at arm's length. But what's true of human relationships is not true of God. It's not true of how God treats us. When we confess our sins, our sins are removed from us. As far as the east is from the west. And we are restored to God's favor and to God's grace. And now I point this out to you. Because there is no one in this room who has not failed God at some point. At many points. There's no one in this room who has not given in to temptation. And maybe you've regretted your sin. Maybe you've repented of your sin. If so, don't go slinking around with God acting like a whipped dog. Return boldly to your relationship with Him. Trust Him as your Father. If you're in Christ, if you have repented of your sins, then your sins are dealt with, they're done, and they're over with. Not because of what you've done, Not because of the fervor of your repentance, but because of the perfect sacrifice of Christ, in whose name and by whose blood we alone can be saved. Some people think that our loving God simply overlooks sin or ignores it or that it's beneath his notice. That's an absolute lie, of course. God is grieved by every sin. The answer to our sin, however, is not our perfection. The answer to our sin is Christ's perfection. The answer to our sin is not our destruction. The answer to our sin is Christ's destruction on the cross. So here's my charge to you this morning in the light of Joshua chapter 8. Trust God. Even if you've sinned, trust God. Seek His favor. Even if you've been guilty. Don't try to prove to God that you're worthy of His love and attention. Instead, remember that God loves you in Christ. God loves you because Christ is lovable and you are in Christ. Seek the presence of God because in His presence there is blessing. Life is always going to have struggles And if we face those struggles alone, we can become worn down and hopeless. But when we walk with God, we move from victory to victory. Without God, we cannot win. But with God, we cannot fail. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father God, we honor you and we adore you. And we thank you for your preservation of your people. We thank you that you are a God of second chances and that the people of Israel were able to go up against I one more time, and that you delivered that land into their hands. Father God, we pray that you would be present with us. We pray that we wouldn't run from you. We pray that we would be quick to confess our guilt and sin and to know you as Father, to trust you with our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.